The reality is terms and conditions cost money. The less terms and conditions you need, the better off you're going to be when it comes to pricing. It's generally the rule. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, we're going to dig into ways to price real estate. Yes, today we're going to go over 18 different formulas I personally use to look at real estate so I can find those diamonds in the rough. Hey, if it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome aboard. Remember, play the show in double speed. Get your life back. Speed me up. Press the button. Double speed. And of course, all the programs I've done on the podcast are lessons on real estate. Today's lesson, 18 ways to price property. We're going to go into some formulas that I use. I'll tell you what, today's show has been inspired by the different dialects inside Australia. Yes, Uh, Today, we have people from all over the world across Australia. It's a very multicultural place. And of course, our Indigenous communities have hundreds of different dialects. And then, of course, there is the English dialect. And of course, uh, as a proponent of the English language, I often run into people whom I cannot understand. So, How can we understand pricing if we can't even speak to each other? I just had a guy at my house doing some jip rocking, and I tell you what, I could not understand a word. I had to to pretend I was slightly deaf as to not offend him. Uh, He could not speak, like he is from Australia, born and bred, but uh, I don't know, he muzzles his words. Like, what? Excuse me? So I tell you what, uh, we all speak a few different languages. Today, we are speaking the language of real estate. I don't know. What's your favorite version of Australian? I like Adelaide's uh, dialect. They sound prim and proper. I'm a prim and proper kind of guy. Uh, I don't know. This chap must have been from North Queensland or something because I could not get a word in. I did not understand what he was talking about. And as such, it inspired today's lesson because I think uh, a lot of the time when it comes to the price of property, people kind of get a little bit, uh, well, don't quite understand it, just like I could not understand the jip rocker. So let's go through it. There's a few ways to look at real estate. And as the famous quote by Oscar Wilde goes, uh, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And I think this little quote by the famous writer Oscar Wilde um, makes a lot of sense. Um Because when we analyze real estate, there is a difference between price, cost, and value. Price is fundamentally what you pay for something. The cost is what you end up expending on the property or spending on the property. And the value is really what you end up getting. And today, too many property investors pay the price for property, don't really know the true cost of owning property and where the value is actually headed and what they're ultimately going to get from property. And of course, uh, today, if we can work out a good price cost value theory, we're going to do very, very well. And today I want to talk you through 18 different metrics I personally use when examining real estate, to choose real estate, to find those diamonds in the rough. And this is the language I speak. It's very clear. It's very Adelaidean. It's not very North Queenslandy. So first metric I like to use, if you like, is the pricing guide around SQM or square meter rates. This 
type of pricing, if you like, is generally used to calculate the difference between the land value of a property and the asset value. And quite often you can see the cost per square meter as a rate, quite often quite useful when comparing properties. So, you know, one property might be, uh, I don't know, 100 square meters. It's on the market for $900,000. In theory, that's 9,000 a meter. You might find a property which is 100 square meters in the same suburb, similar condition, similar uh, comparable kind of look and feel, and it's on the market for $850,000 a dollars. That is obviously 8,500 a meter. So what you pay per meter, particularly when it comes to construction, is an interesting dynamic. Obviously, a lot of property investors love renovating, love building. A lot of property investors even love developing. And of course, the square meter rate is a good guide to work out where true value lies. And quite often in new construction, you'll you see the square meter analysis used. Quite often, some new buildings, the square meter rate is just too high, i.e. the cost to deliver that product to the marketplace is disproportionate against what the secondhand market is trading for. So square meter rate is a really good way to observe where real estate is. And again, if the rate is too high, the cost of build is too high, the cost of the overall property is too high per its square meter, maybe it's a deal you need to bin, you need to move on. Uh, That language doesn't work. However, quite often, even inside uh, the new construction section of the market or the newly renovated section of the market, you can find a really good square meter rate and compare it to the secondhand market and find that things of similar size and scale, similar comparable properties have sold uh, for a similar amount. And so you can work out, well, in that case, the new property may actually be better than the secondhand property because obviously the new property is going to come with some benefits to it, which we'll talk about benefit pricing. But to start with, the summation or square meter rate is a good one to understand. This also pertains to what is also referred to as replacement cost value. With insurance, obviously the cost of things go up. So quite often when we insure a property, we're using replacement cost logic and that actually falls back to what the cost to build something actually is. It's square meter rate. And of course, once again, uh, the cost to replace something may not be as cheap as the inherent cost of something. So what it costs today, what it costs to replace can be two different logics. I.e. you've got a property, it's worth $700,000, but to replace that property would cost $800,000. When it comes to your insurance, quite often you need to think about replacement cost. But today's conversation is about the idea of how to go about pricing properties. I like using the square meter rate rule, uh, working out what things cost, and uh, working out whether I'm in the ballpark or not. The second pricing strategy I love working on is pricing strategies for lending. Now, think about how lending actually works across Australia. There are postcodes which are blacklisted. There are property types which are low LVR properties. There are suburbs where if you spend a certain price point, your loan-to-valuation ratio drops. Uh, And of course, when it comes to pricing strategies or pricing guidelines, obviously suburbs which carry a 90% 
ratio where you can also go and get lenders mortgage insurance tells me that the marketplace is very liquid. It means that the real estate is not considered high risk, particularly when you find a suburb and a typology of real estate. Not all suburbs carry a fair lending assessment. So many suburbs, many types of properties, you can only borrow, for example, 70% or 80%. Now, again, when it comes to formulating your methodology around pricing, I love places and products where the lending guidelines in Australia allow you to borrow the maximum amount. And again, if I was to analyze a property where you could only get a 70% lend on the property, obviously that diminishes the amount of people whom are available to buy that property over the course of you owning the property. Therefore, a pricing strategy behind low lending capability actually reduces the value of the asset. So again, like uh, with where real estate is at, if it's a good suburb, good characteristics around it, good property type, it's going to be in high demand and therefore low risk to a lender. And again, like I've seen the flip side of this problem where markets shut down, where there's a downturn and lenders withdraw from certain places, suburbs, and people get trapped when they're in those areas. They bought in those precincts on an 80% LVR and all of a sudden the new LVR is 60%. The odds of going and finding a buyer who's going to put a 40% deposit down for a property is near impossible, meaning your real estate becomes illiquid. And as such, if I looked at a marketplace and said that is going to become an illiquid marketplace, I would be discounting that property or even removing myself from that property altogether. So the first Principle, if you like, is the square meter rate. Second principle is pricing strategies around actually money. Money is the fuel that moves real estate forward. So we got to understand the money cycle and where banks and lenders like to put their money. So the next pricing strategy, if you like, is competition pricing. So this is where you've got a property on the market. Uh, You're looking at analyzing an asset and there are other properties also selling in the same suburb, sometimes even the same street uh, that are direct competition to the property you're actually looking at. So what else is on the market? This is going to affect the price that is paid for real estate. And of course, when you think about it, right, pricing is a uh, opinion-based algorithm, if you like. Um, You could have three valuers go to a property on the same day, three different prices. You could have three real estate agents appraise a property for sale, three different prices. You could have... 20 buyers go through a property, at the end of the day, one is going to believe that the price is uh, is where it's at and potentially offer the most. So literally 20 people go to an auction, one person wins. So you can imagine there's 20 different opinions on the actual price of the asset. Competition though is what real estate is quite often driven by. Now, again, if you are putting your property on the market um, and there's low stock levels, obviously, potentially, there's going to be more people interested in your asset. When there's high stock levels, again, this can mean there's instant competition for your property and there's volatility for your asset. Now, it changes literally week to week, month to month. It's very, very unpredictable the idea of competition pricing. You never know when something's going to come on the marketplace. Obviously, obviously, each suburb may have 
you know, five, 10, 15 different real estate agents working it. And of course, if all of them get a listing and all bring it to market that weekend, all of a sudden the buyer has more choice. And of course, usually flies to the best A-grade property and sees if they can buy that property at the best possible price. So competition is just something you need to be mindful of if you are buying. Uh, if there is stock levels on the market, you're obviously going to get a better price. If you're selling, uh, you know, the opposite effect unfolds. So again, like competition, it's it's a it's a key metric to how real estate works. I love getting around competition markets by also investing in other types of markets. And I've mentioned this in past podcasts. You know, you can go to NIMBY markets where competition is not necessarily uh, going to be thick and fast. You can go to oligopoly markets where fundamentally if stock goes to market, the vendor is usually in charge. So competition's a thing. We all understand that. We need to understand volatility. Real estate carries a volatility index. The uh, basic rule of thumb of the volatility index of real estate is 10%. So you might have a property, you might think it's worth $500,000. Competition pricing also suggests it's $500,000. The moment you take it to market to sell, all of a sudden you're earning 550 because there's no other stock on the market or your property's worth 500 you go to market but all of a sudden there's 30 other properties that appear um, and guess what your pricing can be reduced and that volatility can come back by 10% as much as it can go up by 10% we call that the volatility index the competition price volatility index in fact Real estate, uh, quite often at real estate school, you were taught, um, you know, you need to, if you are going to market a property, you know, it should sell within a 10% volatility range, up or down. The next uh, way I look at pricing of real estate is, of course, the idea of total return logic. Now, value pricing is something I love. And I've been talking about this a lot of recent times because today the cost to own real estate is going to go up. Uh, let's take a $500,000 property. Let's imagine the interest rates go up by 2% further than where they are today. All of a sudden, the cost to own that property is an extra $10,000 a year. Now, if your rent's not going to cover that difference, you're going to burn $10,000 a year, particularly if you can't use depreciate uh, depreciation uh, and other benefits to prop up your asset. And we call this almost like a burn rate. If your properties, you've bought your property for capital growth, but you're burning cash flow to get that capital growth, then all of a sudden your value pricing may be a little bit off. And again, uh, one of the things I've been open about over the course of my podcast is value pricing is the idea that you take the assumption of that typology of real estate, its historical capital growth performance um, as your growth rate. So let's assume a capital growth performance rate of, for easy maths, 7%, then uh, you look at at a gross level, and then you look at the gross yield of the asset, let's assume 4%, um, you're at 11% all of a sudden total return. And if your value pricing is in line with where it needs to be, you potentially are covering, again, some of the cost to own that real estate because you've bought a yield, but you've also bought growth. Now, again, going back to the logic of, you know, potentially a $500,000 property, it's gone, interest rates go up 10, by 2 more percent, um, all of a sudden you're spending an extra $10,000 a year to maintain that property, 
Uh, if you can't get that back through your rental return and depreciation, then uh, your obviously your total return. Um, perhaps you went with more growth orientated real estate, but now you're paying for that growth through having to burn a hole in your back pocket. So I love the idea of just uh, the formula that there's three parts to the puzzle of real estate. There's you, the tax man, and the tenant. If you can get the tax man and the tenant doing most of the work, you're not going to burn a huge hole in your back pocket, right? And again, for a lot of property investors, right now they're burning hundreds of dollars every week and, uh, you know, they're unable to, to offset that either through a PAYG variation or through the end of the financial year tax return. So the next one for me is the idea around pricing using benchmarks and quartile pricing. Yes. Does that sound riveting? Benchmarks and quartile pricing. So uh, in a suburb, there are benchmarks. There are uh, properties that sell for usually higher than you have bought as an investor. And it allows you to see what quartile of the pricing matrix you sit in. Or if you're buying, you can examine where the quartile matrix is. So uh, let's examine um, an area which I love at the moment. Uh, it's in Newcastle, a place called Fletcher. The upper quartile or the uh, upper 75th percent of that suburb trades at currently today $980,000. So over the last 12 months, anyone buying the A-grade real estate is paying $980,000 for that neighborhood. The middle 50%, if you like, over the last 12 months is trading at $865,000. The lowest quarter, the bottom 25%, is trading at $747,000. So obviously, if we're going to buy into a property suburb, we're going to have to also study where the uh, suburb works from its highest point to its lowest point. And if we're going to buy a property connected to the low point of the suburb, we need to analyze pricing metrics around the low point of the suburb to see where we fit in. Equally, we may be also looking to make money out of the middle price point of a suburb by actually studying the best properties in the market and buying next door. And of course, what this allows us to do as a property investor is work out what is going on in a neighborhood. And we can work out whether the top end of a suburb is going up, pulling up the median, or if it's actually the middle end of the suburb pulling up the medium, or even the lower end of the suburb. So where the price sensitivities are of that particular neighborhood. Now, this is critical to the idea that we want to find a cracking deal if we're going searching, but also the one principle that stands the test of time for property investors is the principle that someone has to be crazier than you one day and pay more for your property or a similar property in the neighborhood you have chosen for there to be market growth into the future. So again, understanding benchmarks is a really good way to discover what people are prepared to pay to enter that suburb. And of course, if people are prepared to pay more, that's usually a good sign that over time, more money will flow into that neighborhood and eventually your property will go up. Now, when it comes to benchmark pricing, there's two types of benchmarks I look for. The NEB, I'll say that again, NEB and OEB. What are they? 
what's the NEB and what's the OEB? Well, the first one is the new established benchmark and the second one is the owner's established benchmark or old established benchmark. So in a suburb, you might have a new, brand new, um, great property that's come to town. What is it sold for? What's the most recent sale of a brilliant new property in the marketplace? What are people paying for that? Because obviously... Um, a really well-designed new property, you know, people will pay a pretty penny for that. Or a newly, completely renovated, um, spick and span property, what are people paying for that? Then we look at what are people paying for old established properties? What are the old benchmarks of a neighborhood? What are people paying for uh, fundamentally a bit of a shitter? So we can look at the two extremes of the marketplace. And again, one way to consider benchmark pricing is old and new and what is going on in the suburb. And of course, it does allow us to understand the key metric that if money is coming into the suburb itself, real estate quartiles will move. And again, you might see the top end of the suburb move. This eventually will drag up the bottom end. So when uh, you're looking at pricing, it's a really good way to look at it. I also love the principle that uh, when it comes to benchmark pricing, you can examine a suburb for what it's doing when in relation to how many owner occupiers live in a suburb. Now, uh, suburb Fletcher, I'm just looking at it at the moment, you know, four out of five, four out of five people who live in that suburb are owners. So they're invested in the suburb. So they're invested in the benchmarks of their suburb improving. They're invested in the community of that suburb. They want growth as much as you do. 20% or thereabouts are people are tenants. So again, like the benchmark of a neighborhood and the benchmark of people in that neighborhood is quite often a massive driver of future performance. And uh, it allows you to really understand value. Remember uh, Oscar Wilde saying, um, you know, uh, there is a difference between value and cost. A cynic is the man who knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. And again, like when we look at some of the value of what, for example, the owner-occupied to tenant ratio brings, it may not be relative right now to the price, but one day it will. So the next uh, thing I look for is fundamentally beyond the purchase pricing. Yes, what happens after you buy the property? What will happen from an ongoing cost perspective? What will happen from an ongoing renovation perspective, an ongoing inflation perspective, an ongoing rate change perspective, an ongoing defect perspective, an ongoing depreciation perspective? What will happen to the property? And uh, for many, many people, they don't do the maths correctly on real estate to look beyond the actual acquisition. So again, properties carry ongoing costs. Uh, It's just the way it is. So if a property's costs are too heavy compared to the day, uh, well, on the day you purchase the property, and after factoring in things like capital cost improvements and so forth, then potentially beyond your day of purchase, there's going to be more to come when it comes to the overall cost of that property. Remember, difference between price, cost, and value. Price is potentially what you paid that day. The cost is the extra expenditure to actually run that property. And if it's cost too much to run, the value won't be in that asset. 
Price is what you pay, cost is what you spend, and value is what you get. And of course, if beyond the sale, there's going to be extra problems to deal with, then the value won't come to the real estate. You won't uh, grow. It won't be worth anything. Now, I just sold a lemon. You guys are across it. I'm a happy man. The lemon is gone. Um, and uh, one of the challenges with that lemon was exactly the, what I'm talking about, price, cost, value. Price, what I paid for it, wasn't a problem. Cost, though, morphed, like things blew out. The cost to run and operate the property and the holding costs were just too much. Uh, and, of course, the market saw that and punished me by paying basically uh, less than what I purchased the property for. So I lost money uh, because my asset lost value because the cost metric was too much. So it's just a, now I'm lemonless, by the way. I'm uh, now free. The shackles are off. I feel great. Everything in my portfolio is just, it's cream pie. Like I could not be happier. If I was to describe my portfolio it's banoffee pie. Everyone loves banoffee pie. Now, the next pricing matrix is uh, basically buyer or seller pricing. Buyer or seller pricing. Obviously, it's pretty simple, right? Markets go through peaks and troughs, whereby either the seller or the buyer is getting the best strike price. It's as simple as that. In a hot market, as we know, the seller may get a better price. In a stagnant market, the buyer might get a better price. That's just the way it works. And again, if you can examine where the market cycle's at and you understand the cycle, whether it's stagnating or growing, you're obviously going to be able to put together a pricing strategy for that asset. Few indicators you can look for, things like days on market, sales volumes, average suburb discount rate, auction clearance rates. These all pertain to really whether the market is moving fast or it's moving slow or it's somewhere in between two. Now, what's considered a fair days on market is 90. 90 days on market, neither the seller nor the buyer is fundamentally in charge. Anything less than 90, usually the buyer is in charge. Closer to 30, the buyer really is in charge. Anything ridiculously low, like 14, and you, the buyer, are probably going to pay a pretty penny for that asset because they, things are moving very, very quickly. The polar opposite, though, if things blow out to 120 days, 150 days, properties on the market, obviously, that's an indicator that the buyer is really going to be in charge of those assets. Now, again, there are some suburbs, if you like, where properties on the market can stick around for, you know, over 100 days. It doesn't make though that deal a good deal. It can quite often go back to the fact that from a pricing point of view, that is a high-risk marketplace. Obviously, pretty uh, vanilla suburbs in our major cities tend to be quite consistent and quite balanced um, so uh, as to be a fair marketplace. The next pricing matrix, if you like, is what I refer to as cost-benefit pricing or trade-off pricing. What are the trade-offs? What are the costs? What are the benefits? What are the trade-offs? There's trade-offs with everything when it comes to real estate. Um, quite often, the perfect deal does not exist. Most investors have to forgo something when it comes to buying Australian real estate. Um, a classic trade-off is, I don't know, Sydney Harbour. It's where the best real estate is in Australia. It's alpha real estate. People pay millions, tens of millions of dollars for that real estate. What's a trade-off? It's going to carry taxes, land tax, and it's going to carry probably a very low rental return, probably the lowest in Australia. It's the best real estate in Australia with the lowest rental return. Uh, that's a classic example of a trade-off. Um, obviously, there's 
pros and cons to every single property out there. As I've alluded to, I mean, to overcome trade-offs, you can classify real estate as A, double A, triple A, B, double B, triple B, C, double C, triple C, D, double D, triple D. And of course, rank your real estate based on some different characteristics, the building characteristic, the land characteristic, and also the location or suburb characteristic. So um, that that's generally how you can work out your trade-offs. So you could have an A-grade street, uh, beautiful streetscape, uh, B-grade property needs a little bit of um, TLC um, in a C-grade suburb, like ABC. So again, like you're going to have trade-offs every time you look at real estate. And again, like this is the game of real estate. What do you accept as a cost and what do you accept as a benefit? Hopefully, you'll choose more benefits than things that detract the real estate. Main road, detraction point. Uh, benefit, you know, beautiful garden. That, that's the, these are the trade-offs, right? So uh, obviously in that example, um, probably just find a new property because the main road is probably such a barrier as a trade-off. So uh, the next uh, pricing conversation, we're up to nine. We're doing like 18 of these. So we've still got half an hour to go. So if you didn't speed me up, now's the time to do that because I'm not going anywhere for a while. And uh, that could be annoying because, I don't know, there's a lot of people say, you know, the perfect podcast should be 37 minutes so you can, uh, I don't know, listen to it and uh on your way to work. My podcasts are never 37 minutes. I ramble too much. But hopefully I'm sharing good information. And just on that, if you like my stuff, give a brother a review. Yes, that's how people find me, through reviews, uh, the algorithm of reviews. So uh, we're up to nine, um, which is basically staged or gentrification pricing. So obviously there's a period where real estate uh, goes through transformation. There's a period where uh, places go through transformation. Transformation is a cycle. And the earlier you buy in that cycle, usually the cheaper the price is going to be. However, the further away value is. It's an interesting uh, dynamic, right? So you can look at this in a couple of ways. Let's go, for example, to a new land subdivision, your stage one, uh, best price. You're going to pay, I don't know, let's just make up a number, $600,000 for a brand new house in stage one of a place. However, there are 37 more stages to go. Obviously, by the time you get to 37, the 37th stage, prices will have climbed, no doubt, during that period of time. Stage one, there are no schools. Tenants, trade-off, may not even want to live there just yet. Uh, trade-off, there's no shops because all of a sudden you're the early bird. Um over time, though, the value comes to the area and pushes up the real estate. It pushes the value. Now, conversely, you can buy at the last stage, pay uh, probably more than the person who bought in the first stage of that example. However, you're getting instant value. The shops are built, the train line's working. You're getting the efficiency. And quite often things turbocharge even after the last possible property is put into a neighborhood. Why? Because the property becomes landlocked. There's no more availability. So gentrification pricing can happen in new uh, suburbs, but it also can happen in much older places. Now, I teach there are eight stages to the gentrification cycle. Each stage you're going to pay a different price for the real estate. 
you've got the first H, which is basically uh, a neighborhood is an ugly duckling and it's basically underwhelming. The second stage is really uh, locals, policy people start to go, this suburb is too good for that possible uh, to look so possibly that bad. It is prime real estate. Let's work out how to improve it. The third stage is you'll see pioneering development or renovation. Residents start to uh, really improve the local real estate scene, if you like, which really does bring more intensive version of that transformation, which is the fourth stage of gentrification. The fifth stage is a complete population shift. Basically, people who no longer can afford to live in that particular neighborhood um, potentially move out and new residents move in with a new socioeconomic amount of money. Gentrification is as much about the transformation of the look of real estate as well as the transformation of people. Eventually, sixth, you get displacement, people leave. Then seven, full transformation. Finally, full turbo gentrification. The upper class move in. Uh, money is basically, um, yeah, like not a problem in the neighborhood and people view the neighborhood as a great place to live. And of course, rich people attract other rich people and all of a sudden you get this turbo effect. Now, I bought a property in Collingwood uh, probably about, what was it, five years ago. Um, really, when I came to that suburb, really you uh, were probably at stage seven of the pricing cycle. Uh, full transformation. The old neighborhood was starting to really largely look unrecognizable. Most residents uh, were really a newer population base. They weren't uh, your quintessential Collingwood supporter, if you like. Um, their culture was now dominating the businesses. I mean, you could go down Gertrude Street and buy a $4,000 suit. Uh, so, uh, arguably, I bought towards the end of the gentrification cycle, knowing though one of the best ways to make money is what is known as turbo gentrification, which is when the upper class basically pushes values to the extreme. And today in Collingwood, if you go by the latest census data, there's a big transformation of how much the incomes are in that suburb. It has gone up in its income profile. It's one of the uh, few places in Australia where wage growth has occurred for the residents of that particular neighbourhood. Interesting dynamic because that correlates to turbo gentrification. So again, um, I could have bought in stage one, but that would have been 25 years ago and I wasn't buying in uh, that particular area 25 years ago. So, of course, um, I paid more than what someone paid 25 years ago for an asset in that neighbourhood. But the point of the conversation is I did that with full knowledge of the gentrification pricing cycle. I knew what I was doing and as a result of that, have made a handsome amount of money. This is the conversation. Again, as Oscar Wilde said, a cynic knows the value of, uh, of everything, um, but, well, knows the cost of everything, but the value of nothing, right? And uh, people would probably say to me, and I had conversations with people, people say, well, that's cost. That seems like a ridiculous cost to pay that amount to buy in Collingwood, uh, not knowing the value what was being delivered by the gentrification cycle. Okay, so we've got that one out. 
The next pricing guideline, if you like, is future supply. Future supply. Now, you can look at this in a couple of ways. Now, if a suburb is earmarked for a hell of a lot of supply, then that could meddle with the property or properties that you potentially own in a neighborhood. So stargazing into a pipeline of future stock and how it will income, uh, impact the landscape of a neighborhood is a really important dynamic when choosing pricing. Particularly in a negotiation point, you can say, well, look, I know in this suburb there's X amount of properties due to come to market. Combine that with days on market at the moment. That means potentially uh, the property market is actually going to dip for a little bit in value. So why would I be paying a premium for this particular property knowing the future supply of real estate is going to directly impact that particular suburb. That's really the best way to understand it. Obviously, when it comes to square meter rates, going back to the first point, uh, properties generally inflate, the cost to deliver properties generally go up over time. So new supply isn't necessarily always an evil thing. Sometimes new supply can actually bring with it a push or flex on what uh, current values actually are. In other words, can actually do the opposite. Having a little bit of supply coming to a suburb is actually quite a healthy thing because it can actually lift the overall values of properties in that suburb. So again, how we analyze real estate is uh, a big conversation. The next one, the 11th one, is what I refer to as terms and conditions pricing. Now, again, like uh, for a lot of property investors, they'd love to be all cash. Let's face it. Uh, I once made a gentleman, uh, I think it was, what, $700,000 because he, he was all cash? All cash. Uh, if I went to an alternative property investor with that particular deal, they would have asked a subject to finance 35 times to try and borrow the money. Do you think the vendor who wants to offload a property wants someone who's all cash or needs subject to finance 55 times? So the reality is terms and conditions cost money. The less terms and conditions you need, the better off you're going to be when it comes to pricing. It's generally the rule. Um, however, again, when negotiating, if you do need terms and conditions, that's just the way life is. And again, I think for some property investors, they'd prefer to pay, for example, $20,000 more than the original strike price, price on a property if they can take that property off the market and not go to auction or get a great term like subject to finance, building and pest, uh, you know, other you know, in, uh, regulatory impositions on the property. Like people love terms. And uh, again, like terms just cost money. There's That's just the way it is. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But again, like sometimes you will hear stories of someone who's bought a property exponentially low. And when you look at how they went and did it, all cash, all cash. Uh Money talks, uh, terms and conditions, don't. And uh, that's just the way it is. I like real estate um, where, you know, you can negotiate some terms and conditions, particularly for my clients, because they're not all cash. But if you were all cash, uh, come and see me because there's some cool things you can do. So obviously, terms and conditions add to the cost of a property. It's usually the way it is. Not always. There are sometimes you can strike some real good terms and conditions. But in general, uh, real estate, as the Latin phrase goes, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Uh, real estate is a buyer beware marketplace. As such, pricing is quite often driven uh, by the virtue of people taking properties out without terms. Think of an auction. There's no terms at an auction. It's buyer beware, caveat emptor. 
Uh, if you're not going to be an auctioner, you're probably going to have some terms. So you've probably just got to understand the wriggle room around that. I guess the next uh, pricing conversation I like looking into is really commercial considerations, right? Like, you know, you might be buying a new property off a brand developer. It's a completely different pricing guide potentially to a weekend developer that no one's ever heard of that basically operates off a spreadsheet which fundamentally every uh, other day closes down their company and doesn't even have a website. Big difference. Big difference. And quite often I see this inside of new construction. You know, a person will do their research and go, well, what about this one? You're like, well, mate, like who are these people? Like will this thing, you know, even work? Like, Like can you ring the the own like who is who is the developer right like who is the builder um so again the more uh you look at real estate there are some commercial considerations and you know obviously brands um if they're good brands they perform and people will buy those brands um you know i was just looking actually in collingwood at a property that sold at 304 slash 47 Peel Street, Collingwood. Uh, Very small property, 65 square meters, but uh, really well-designed property. It sold for 14,000 a meter. This is a benchmark record. Remember going back to new uh, benchmarks and old benchmarks. Properties a few years old now, but pretty well sit in the new section of the marketplace. Uh, 14,000 a metre, square metre rate. Um, today, I can buy properties in Collingwood still at 10,500, a metre. This is now 14,000 per square metre property. Uh, sold for $950,000 on the 18th of June, 2022. Uh, the property is known as Peel by Milu. Now, Milu is as good as you're going to get when it comes to a commercial developer. And as such, people are prepared to pay for that particular brand. It is a consideration. Now, you potentially can go and buy uh, a property at a much cheaper rate, but are you getting the right brand? And today, human beings are very brand conscious. There are some great brands in the real estate market and there are less impressive brands in the real estate marketplace. Again, it comes back to also the idea that certain architecture and style carries more brand power than others. A federation home is going to cost more than a generic standard home because of its brand consideration. You need to consider brand when you're considering pricing, considering where things are at. And I would prefer to pay more for a better brand or a better architect, a better design team. I would prefer to pay more for the considerations behind that than go no name. Uh, Because uh, no name also travels with the real estate brand also travels with the real estate over a period of time cost price value with the milu example and you know these are these are incredible developers um game changing the world right i've never done business with them but wow they 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 do some cool stuff um uh Price, cost, value. Price, when uh, the previous person bought the property, people thought they were crazy. Cost, turns out to be a low barrier cost decision because the actual cost of the asset has stood the test of time. The value it has brought is a sizable profit for the person who bought it 
obviously before this person's come along. Someone's paid more for the real estate. Someone was crazier to pay more for the real estate than the previous person. How did this come about? A lot of it was the commercial considerations around brand. Again, like this is where if you find the right brands to deliver you an outcome, you're usually going to get an outcome. The next pricing strategy that we're going to go over is the pricing strategy of rents. Yes, rent pricing or sometimes known as yield variation or the cap rate. Now, it's a pretty simple formula. Uh, Really, the idea that uh, cities, suburbs have a basically yield, uh, then a property has a yield. And if you're... uh, For example, your city and the suburb, the average yield is 3%, but your property that you're buying carries a 3.5% yield. Obviously, it's better than market. It indicates either the property is actually underpriced or the rental market really, really, really resonates with the property that is on offer. So you can use the yield to give you a bit of a gauge as to where pricing is. If your yield is too low compared to the marketplace, compared to the suburb average, the city average, obviously you've got to work out why that is the case, whether your property is part of the premium end of the market when naturally the highest quartile you see a drop in yield performance. However, if you're sitting in the middle quartile, the lower quartile, and you just have a bad yield, uh, you can then work out potentially you're overpaying for the property. So yield variation or the cap rate is a great way to examine yield. Generally, at a glance, the three that I use just quickly and simply, summation, the cost or square meter rate, yield, cap rate, and the 14th one, which is the comp rate or comparable pricing. Now, we kind of talked about uh, what's on the market previously in our pricing metric. We've got to analyze the competition of the market, not to confuse the competition of the market with what has sold, which is comparable. So comparable properties are sold properties generally noted as recent sales in the last three, six months in the same neighborhood or within, you know, one or two kilometers of the subject property. How we analyze comparable pricing is what is known as direct comparison, like for like, apples for apples, oranges for oranges. And as such, uh, if we can understand what things have sold for that are similar, that are direct comparisons. We obviously can work out where we sit within our pricing. We can even go, well, that sold six months ago, but using indexing as part of comparable pricing, let's say the market has gone up 5% using indexing or capital growth rates. We know potentially we're going to have to pay 5% more if the market goes down. Same conversation as well. The next pricing I love to use is things like penetration pricing or benefit pricing. And again, like this does relate to what you can get from a fixtures and fittings point of view. And quite often this is subject not only in the contract, but sometimes outside the contract. You, for example, the lemon property I just sold. Uh, I also negotiated outside the contract to sell some furniture with that property. So I created a benefit for the person um, actually buying. Also benefited me selling because I really didn't want the furniture. Um, So I got a set price for the property and then I created a benefit. So uh, there are all sorts of benefits you can negotiate in pricing, upgrades, discounts, abatements, deals, um, you know, you name it. Real estate allows you to come up with uh, benefits to the pricing formula. 
It might be a furnished property. You negotiate the furniture. It might, uh, you know, you might negotiate to in- include fixtures and fittings. When a property is sold, it is also not just the title, but you buy the fixtures and fittings. Some fixtures and fittings are removed. You can negotiate them as a benefit. Again, abatements, rebates, upgrades, discounts, cashbacks, all possible inside the real estate marketplace. And again, you've got to work out the trade-offs, whether something is uh, a good deal or whether it's just, um, you know, lipstick on a pig. That's basically uh, the best way to understand it. Obviously, when it comes to pricing, uh, you can look at things like past performance. And I love looking at past performance, historical growth rates to understand where pricing should be. Again, this goes back to a little bit what I was talking about with direct comparison, like for like. Pricing based on the index growth rates, the index pricing rate. Where is the index? Is it going up or is it going down? What is the past performance How does this correlate to the future performance? And again, this is very data science analytics, but does help you understand where pricing is. The next form of pricing I love is quite often market pricing. And I'll talk about this pricing through three dynamics. Real estate suburbs are either bearable, equitable, or sustainable I'll say it again, they're bearable, equitable, or sustainable. A bearable marketplace is the people inside that marketplace can afford the properties in that marketplace, but fundamentally, unless their wages go up, if the cost of the properties go up, the properties, uh, sorry, if the cost to own those properties goes up, uh, the market can only bear it. It's, it can't pay more for the real estate. We call that a bearable marketplace where basically the people inside the suburb cannot afford to pay any more for the real estate. And we look at that through uh, home prices versus uh, wages. Equitable, mark, equitable markets allow for pricing whereby a suburb is viewed as a place where you're going to create equity. The reason you're going to create equity there is the incomes versus property values is disproportionate. In other words, it's too cheap. In other words, there's good income levels against uh, the property values of the neighborhood. And as such, you can quite often find equity. Just like my Collingwood example, being in the turbo gentrification period of the gentrification cycle, it showed me that it was a very equitable market. In other words, there are higher incomes coming into the suburb, not only located into the suburb, and lo and behold, equity was created from that marketplace. The market can go up in value it, unlike some other suburbs, which are still bearable, people in the suburb fundamentally can just afford to hang on to their asset. Most of Australia today is what we would refer to as a bearable marketplace. Most people can bear the cost of properties. Uh, however, not all places can people pay more for real estate. And that is what we look for when it comes to market pricing. Sustainable markets is just where you get Uh, a period of time where year on year equity can be produced inside of real estate. And over the last boom, if you like, most of Australia actually went to sustainable. It it created equity from, uh, from properties for a couple of years. Now, most of Australia is probably back at a bearable place. So it allows you to understand the logic of where the market is at, uh, at. The final pricing, if you like, is add value pricing, sometimes known as gross realization. It's just a mathematical formula. It basically can tell you if you do something to add value to real estate, how much profit can you make 
from doing that particular act. And of course, that allows you to then offer the right amount to buy the property. Um, Now, I obviously teach the property trifecta. Uh, That is the simple idea. We want to buy and hold property portfolio. We want a property portfolio. We change the trajectory of the cash flow. And uh, in doing so, we can also do things like, um, you know, teaming up together to buy things like development sites and we can be an armchair developer. There's an add value concept. So when we look at pricing in that space, it's like, well, how do we mathematically actually create instant equity by understanding what we pay? how we add value to the real estate and what that new value will be. And of course, this can be done at a renovation level, a subdivision level. It can be done at a amalgamation level. It can be done at a development level. There's a few uh, iterations of how to do add value pricing. But at the end of the day, uh, the purpose of it is generally to work out a trading profit. What can you buy and flip a property for? So guys, that's the end of the pricing conversation. That's the dialect of Australian pricing real estate. Just like the Jip Rocker, uh, I hope you have a great day because I know the Jip Rocker is because I can't understand a word he's saying. He's in his own world. I hope you're in a good world. I'm leaving this podcast until we meet again. Uru. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.